The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello, you're listening to The Views Room, brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba. I'm joined by my colleague today, Anna Shemansky. Hi, Anna. Hello. And in this edition, we will discuss Germany's wobbly government, and we will have Liam Proud, who will dial in from London, to take us through the ramifications of that. And then later in the program, our Hong Kong Bureau will walk you through one of the biggest bank scandals to hit Australia. But first, German Chancellor... Angela Merkel's government is hanging by a thread. Liam, can you explain what happened over the weekend? So as our listeners might or might not know, the German government is a slightly unusual coalition between the two main parties. It's the conservative Christian Democrats, which is um, Angela Merkel's party, and the Social Democrats, um, called the SPD, who are kind of centre-left. It's almost the equivalent of the Democrats and Republicans being in coalition together, or Britain's Labour and Conservative Party. It's, it's the two traditionally largest parties. Now, the SPD, which is the centre-left party, um, has been without a leader since uh, roughly the spring, and they have recently elected a leader who is not the person that everybody expected it would be. Everyone expected it would be Finance Minister Olaf Scholz. Um, it's not going to be him. It's going to be a double ticket of Saskia Esken and Norbert Walter Borjans. And they are further to the left than um, the party has been in quite a while. Can you explain why that matters? Like, why can't the Social Democrats choose? whoever they want to choose? Like, do they have to kind of stick to certain people? Like, why was this a surprise? It was a surprise because um, Schultz won the first round of voting. Um, it's, it's, it's important because the government coalition is essentially now um, potentially unviable. Basically, uh, Esken and, and Walter Borjans had run on a ticket saying they would only stay in the coalition if um, it was renegotiated and there would be much higher investment in infrastructure, much higher investment in schools, um, a big kind of Green New Deal, which is a conversation that we're seeing in a lot of left-wing parties around the world at the moment. Um, so it remains to be seen whether the centre-right party will cave to those demands or whether they'll just say, OK, fine, um, see you later. That's the end of that coalition. So then this could potentially result in snap elections? It could. So the first question is, will either side cave? Um, they could. You could see a kind of slightly messy fudge where, you know, neither side wants to be blamed for breaking up the government and, and they both kind of get some token pledges that they could, you know, walk away and say, we're happy with this. Um, or there could be snap elections. Uh, another scenario is that Merkel would try and govern as a minority um, administration um, or try and form another coalition in parliament. So it's still very much up in the up in the air at the moment. But the takeaway is that this kind of grand coalition, it's called, which has um, been a kind of driving force for, for not only German policy, but European policy for um, the last two years, really, um, is, is not um, viable in its current form anymore. So last time we discussed Merkel, I, I believe she was stepping down um, at some point. So when is she planning to do that? Or is she still planning to do that? So there's an election scheduled for 2021. 
Um, and the expectation is that she will not run. Um, her defence minister will probably, um, is who's someone who's known as AKK, she's Annengret Kramp Karambauer, um, will probably uh, run as the leader of the CDU, the Christian Democrat Party. Um, the bigger question would be if there is a snap election in the next few months, would Merkel run in then? The assumption is probably no. So it could be that because of this rather kind of unlikely event um, of the SPD changing leadership, it actually triggers a change of leadership at the Christian Democrats. And therefore we have um, no more Mrs. Merkel, who's been the premier European statesman for the best part of the past decade. Okay, so if I understand it correctly, then this could force Merkel's um, retirement, if you will, much earlier than she had anticipated. Yes, it's, 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 it's very much possible. Yeah. And it seems like it kind of signals this end of an era. And, and I, I mean, I think this is very important in Germany, but it's interesting to see in, in Europe in general how you're seeing this pushback to established parties. Could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that you've seen um, in a lot of centre-left parties in Europe. So Britain's Labour Party has um, definitely veered uh, leftwards in, in recent years under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, Basically, what's happened in Germany is the the big change in, if you just look at the graph of the different parties' popularity over the past five or six years, is the Green Party has just not come from nowhere. It's a very old party. It's been around in various forms um, for, for many decades in Germany. But it's really very popular now. It's, 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 it's on just over 20% of the vote, depending on which poll you look at, um, which is way higher than the SPD's. Um, so... so Essentially, what's happening now is the centre-left party in Germany is, is having to deal with that threat and is having to make a lot of kind of green pledges. This idea of a Green New Deal um, is, is basically shifting the centre of gravity towards, um, you know, this, this ongoing ecological crisis, which, which I think a lot, a lot of parties on the left think needs, needs solving. In the last year or so, we're seeing all of these different movements and often often young people, often on the left, you know, with these calls both for the environment, but also for income inequality, you know, seeing everywhere from Chile to Lebanon. And I'm kind of wondering, does this kind of fit into that that trend? I, th I think it's difficult because the, you know, G G Germany is, is, I mean, the cliche is that it, it it doesn't do political revolutions, you know, it's, or, or at least hasn't done since, since reunification. It's, it's, I think you'll probably see that these, these two parties will be quite reluctant to break up the coalition. It's, you do tend to have a slower pace of change. Um, and also the German Green Party is not the same as the Green Parties elsewhere in Europe, which are, which are usually very, very left-wing parties. Um, it's, it's more of a kind of small-c conservative, you know, conserve, conserve the economy, conserve nature, conserve um, everything. And, and right now that means kind of restructuring the economy. So that's a caveat, but, but in general terms, yes. I mean, you just have to look at the, look at the, the story is almost exactly the same in, in, in every European country. I mean, the two major centre-left and centre-right parties, particularly the centre-left parties in, in every major economy in Europe, basically makes up a smaller fraction of the vote than it did five, six years ago. Yeah, I mean, that it sort of has a corollary here in the United States, too. Right now, uh, we're gearing up for the Democratic uh, primaries. And it's, you know, there are a lot of candidates who are vying for that position. But you see, you know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who are, you know, pretty far to the left in terms of what they're uh, promising or what they hope to promise in terms of um, 
Medicare for all, uh, and then also like free colleges for, you know, mostly everybody. (laughs) I mean, just like they're making these big sweeping promises. Environment certainly plays a part of that. And then you see the same thing uh, with other candidates who are more moderate. And in the middle, Joe Biden is certainly one of them. And, you know, there's this poll going on. It's going to be interesting to see who actually um, ends up winning um, the, the Democratic primary. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think w- one of the things that kind of connects all of those is often this desire to spend more, right? And I think in the German context, this is obviously a big deal because obviously Germany has been kind of obsessed with their, you know, Dishfatzenol, <laughs> their, you know, not yeah. having any um, any deficits. And I'm wondering how this could potentially kind of change that, and just and how that affects this kind of global desire for fiscal stimulus. I think the Dishfatzenol um, is is you know if if you're a kind of you know uh, f- looser fiscal policy oriented person watching this it it would be tempting to say okay great the 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 one of the coalition parties is veering leftward that means looser fiscal policy we're going to finally germany might abandon its kind of you know fetishization of 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 not having a um a budget deficit i think that would be a bit of a stretch um this, the, the main CDU party, the Merkel's party, is still the most popular party in the country um, and is almost proud of its fetishization. They'll, 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 they'll not back away from that very easily. Um, and even the other parties, I mean, you know, the, the, the rhetoric you've seen from Eskin and, and Walter Bojans since they were elected as head of the SPD um, has not been as fiery as it was before the election. They haven't said, we will break up the coalition for sure. Um, if we don't get what we want, it's been it's been toned down a little bit. Um, I think across Europe, it's got some interesting economic implications as well. I mean, it's sort of it's 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 less clear that you would have um, Merkel as this kind of driving force between behind a lot of the kind of crucial financial reforms um, that 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 the new Commission is going to want. Um, uh, but yeah, just on the fiscal stimulus, I think I think it, it could be a bit more complicated in Germany. Do you see this as um, the people? I mean, because this is a movement I think that's happening everywhere, and it certainly has happened here in the United States, where people are turning inward. Um, they're becoming, uh, you know, much more concerned about their own country versus um, the, you know, for example, with the United States and NATO. We have President Donald Trump, who's been, you know, causing uh, some roiling the waters, I guess, if you will, um, uh, on that on that topic. But I mean, do you see the same trend in Germany or does Germany still very much want to be a a model country that and clearly the largest economy? um, Do they still want to kind of wear that mantle? Yeah, I think the answer is it's it's not that there's one direction of travel. It's that you're seeing a, a polarization of views on the importance of um, kind of thinking globally and, and, and being a supporter of European integration. What you're seeing is the, the, the AFD, which is the kind of far right party, the anti-immigrant party, um, has, has gained support, you know, over the past decade or so. Um, you have also seen within the main centre right party, um, more kind of anti-immigrant um, 
uh, rhetoric, um, particularly from the Bavarian sister party to, to, to Angela Merkel's. But at the same time, on the other side of the political spectrum, you're seeing this reinvigoration of a kind of leftist, um, you know, pro-European movement. It's been the same here in Britain. You've seen um, a lot of youth engagement around the, the pro-Remain after the Brexit referendum. Um, you saw in France, Emmanuel Macron's um, is now the president having run on a, on a kind of proudly liberal internationalist ticket. So I think what you're seeing is just a kind of a, a polarization, a bifurcation of these things. Um, it's, it's the same as Spain as well. And, and, and the risk is that you essentially just kind of have these two political worlds that don't really permit coalitions, which is really difficult in Europe. In Spain, we've basically not had a, a real government for, for years now. And, you know, you can't add together parties that agree on nothing and make a government. Um, it could be the same in Britain after this election on December the 12th. You might have another hung parliament. We essentially haven't had a majority in the UK for the last couple of years. Um, so I think the risk is less that there's a universal move away from globalism. It's more that there's just a move away from having big movements that everyone sits under and agrees with. It's, it's just a, it's becoming a kind of fragmented mess. Okay, Liam. Well, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for coming on. Great. Thanks, both. Uh, it's another incredible, if all too believable, bank scandal uh, for us to talk about. This time it's in Australia. I'm Jeff Goldfarb, and I'm here with Clara Ferreira-Marquez in Hong Kong to talk about Westpac. And before we dive into it, Clara, I just kind of want to rewind the clock to refresh both of our memories, but also our listeners, because... Nine months ago, you and I took a trip down to Australia. It was right at the time that this massive report came out after a year-long inquiry, this Royal Commission report. And as we ran around and talked to bankers and other people around Australia, there was sort of like this big sigh of relief. There was like, okay, there's nothing really awful in this report. We've already had our market values punished. We've had some CEOs go. And like, it's all going to be okay from here. And now, now we fast forward nine months and we get to Westpac. So t tell us what happened here. Well, it's been a pretty awful couple of years for the Australian banking sector, because even before the Royal Commission, the public inquiry that you mentioned that was made for gripping viewing throughout 2018 in Australia, we had sort of people fainting in the dark, uh, uh, CEO and the chairman of um, National Australia Bank left at the end of the inquiry. So it was really a painful one. That came after a number of investigations. The most prominent was Commonwealth Bank of Australia, which um, had massive anti-money laundering breaches, which eventually ended with the departure of or resulted in the departure of the CEO. So, so big period of trauma. So as a result of that, it's pretty, well, not surprising, unfortunately, but it is shocking, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, see. so now we have another, like, I mean, so Westpac, the oldest and second largest bank in Australia, yep. has now been hit with these extraordinary money laundering charges. And I mean, talk us through a little bit about, I mean, that some of the detail is is painful, but... Um. Absolutely. So this is second largest bank in Australia, a bank with a reputation for being well-run. So Brian Hart's CEO, Lindsay Not Meister. Anymore. Well, yes, <laughs> we'll no longer <laughs> as of, uh, as of <laughs> a few days back. And Lindsay Meister, chairman, also leaving next year as a result of all of this. Um, but it had a reputation for being pretty well-run. Uh, it had a number of problems a couple of decades ago so this, the, the really impressive thing here is the scale. So Austrac, which is the financial intelligence agency in Australia, has accused them or accused them last month of 23 million breaches of anti-money laundering rules. 
it just tells us that they failed to report, that they perhaps deleted data in some instances before it was uh, before they were allowed to delete it. Um, there were KYC failures, so failures in terms of knowing your customer. They didn't track particular patterns. And the sting in the tail of what Ostrak is saying is that in some cases, a lot of these small transactions, the pattern is that of people making small payments to facilitate child exploitation in the Philippines. So if it's not bad enough that you breached anti-money laundering rules 23 million times, adding up to a potential fine in the multiple trillions, right. uh, obviously they won't, it won't be that large, right. but the child exploitation element of it is not to say that it did happen, but it could have done, and Westpac didn't spot those patterns. That's incredibly right. so painful. You have this massive problem of obvious, uh, you know, assuming all these allegations are borne out. I mean, it's a pretty extraordinary lack of internal controls, um, you know, risk management, all sorts of other things. But um, so I guess you get to sort of you t you alluded to the, the financial penalty. I mean, I, we're not going to see trillion dollar penalties on Westpac, presumably. But what I mean, what kind of what are we looking at in terms of scale? And have investors fully digested what you know what's at stake here? How bad it could get? So it's a really good question because it's also you know what exactly went wrong here. There's some some things that we do know. We do know that some of these breaches continued even when CBA was publicly speaking about its own breaches of anti-money laundering rules. So really, you know, if you were the board, if you were Brian Hartzer, if you were the head of the Risk and Compliance uh, Committee, you should have been on top of these uh, particular issues. They obviously weren't. Um, then there is the response, you know, was the bank quick enough? At the beginning, they just cut bonuses, external inquiry, that very quickly it was apparent that that was nowhere near enough. In terms of the cost, obviously it isn't going to be in the trillions because that is multiple times the market value of West Bank <laughs> and of the economic, of the entire, entire Australian economy, economy right. yes. But we have something to go on, right? Because CBA paid about a fine of seven hundred million Aussie dollars. Aussie dollars, yeah, that's right. So we're expecting here about a billion Aussie okay. dollars, which is. Um, I mean, the scale here is bigger, but the transactions are smaller than in the CBA case. So that's what what. But this most is all, but that's all. I mean, obviously, in. any kind of settlement that may come out of this, which it seems like the market is expecting yeah. pricing in, is really only one piece of this, that's as is common right. with these kinds of mega scandals that, that happen with banks. So that's right. I mean, this is much more complicated than just the $1 billion because the context of this is that Westpac was raising money in order to bolster the capital that it was holding its common um, equity tier one. So if you're raising 2.5 billion Aussie dollars and then this comes out, you have a much bigger problem yeah, than just this. Yeah, that's a whole other this. mess, right? I mean, they Quite. also, they had to, I mean, I know it wasn't large sums, but they even had to offer refunds to some of the retail component of that capital raise right. because this sort of an extraordinary event to come out while you're asking people for money. So they have a couple of things that will come up as well as the fine. So the ASIC and APRA, two further regulators, APRA is the prudential regulator. ASIC is probing in particular what they knew when they asked um, investors for $2.5 billion. So Aussie dollars. So two billion was a fully underwritten um, institutional offering, and the the five hundred million is is retail. That's where they're offering um, the reimbursements. But then APRA, the prudential regulator, could ask you to hold more money. So the money that you raised is going to a fine. You have to hold more money at a time when New Zealand is also considering asking Australian banks to hold more money. 
The cost of compliance is going to go up. Your technology investment was clearly insufficient and will have to go up. The brand damage is substantial. Dis- yeah. Despite the fact that Brian Hartz has said average Australians don't care, well, actually, average Australians probably do care. Yeah, I mean, and then, of course, and then on top of it, you have this entire economic backdrop, which is right. already squeezing the banks. Um, you know, we saw a rate decision recently. They, they, they've, they're holding them still, but rates have come down. You have um, an economy that is, for the first time in nearly 30 years sort of Correct. wobbling a bit. Um, and that's huge compression on uh, on bank uh, So margins. on top of all of this, <laughs> this fine, the problems, the fact that you've just lost your pretty much your entire management team, you had to bring back a CFO that was about to retire to be your CEO until you appoint a new one. It's a big disturbance. But the context, as you say, is dramatic. I mean, we're at ultra low rates. 0.75% is the lowest. Um, it's a record. We're pretty much only 50 basis points from uh, the lower bound here, which means, you know, the, the central bank can't go below that and still be effective. Very weak credit growth. Um, as a result of the Royal Commission, the banks have really been um, holding back. Um, intense competition. You know, you have more upstarts coming in as well. The technology investment has been super challenging for a lot of these banks. So it's so really it? so a very that, poor I mean, context. Just as we wrap it up, I mean, wh- I mean, do you feel like the market has sorted all of this in its head because this is a bank that's still along with its peers to be fair is still trading at a premium to book value you know a healthy premium to book value at that not very common for banks there's only a couple of them in the world that actually fetch that kind of valuation Uh, should we expect like another shoe to drop on this well um i would argue yes and that's what we've we've written um so the market has written off a substantial portion for westpac about um, four billion Aussie last time we checked, but it still trades at a premium. I mean, it's not quite a Commonwealth Bank of Australia premium, which is almost twice book, but it's well ahead of its peers. I mean, to be clear, the banks are still profitable. They're still paying decent dividends, not quite as good as it used to be. But we still feel that compared to, uh, say, you know, other banks that have gone through similar periods of strain, it still looks pretty intense, even for banks that remain oligopolistic in nature. So we have four. Um, four of them pretty much dominating the market even today. All right. Thanks very much, Clara. Extraordinary story. Thank you very much. Well, that's our show for this week. I would like to thank our guests, Liam Proud, Jeff Goldfarb, and Clara Fierra Marquez. And hats off to our producers, Laura Browner, Sharon Lamb, Freddie Joyner, and Ross Shoulder. Our final thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.